0: I don't actually know how far we're going to get through this today, but hopefully we'll try to get through it. Matthew chapter 10, and we're looking at the lives of the apostles. And uh, as we come to chapter 10, he's ready to send them out on their first mission, to give them some on-the-job, in-the-field training experience. And this chapter really includes the instructions that he's going to give them. And that's really what the meat of this chapter is, and we're going to be getting into that in the coming weeks. But as we read over the names of the apostles, um, it just uh, I just thought it would be good to take some time and get to know these guys a little better because you hear their names, and, and sometimes you just kind of assume certain things about them, and sometimes those assumptions is not true. Um, a lot of times here in the last half of, Looking at these apostles, they were, remember, they were grouped in three groups of four. They were always listed that way in any of the Gospels. And the first person in each group was always the same, meaning he was probably the leader of that little group of apostles. And Peter was always the first one listed, and he was the leader of all of them, basically, um, under the Lord. He was their spokesman, you might say. And a lot of times he opened up his mouth and he put his foot in it but at least he was willing to do something, say something about it. But before we get into the instruction that Jesus gave them, uh, we want to look at hopefully three last guys, at least two of them. And uh, they're in verse uh, uh, 3 there, the end of verse 3. Last week we looked at Matthew, uh, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus. And uh, today we want to look at Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. And uh, when, you, when you stop and you look at these different guys, you realize that they're all a little bit different. Each one has their own personality. Each one has their own background. And uh, we can kind of identify with that. You know, the church isn't made up of people who are just cloned to be like each other. We all have different abilities. We all have different talents. We all have different giftings according to the Holy Spirit. And uh, we all have different personalities. And I think it was Chuck Swindoll who said that sometimes the church is kind of like a bunch of porcupines try to dance because they get close enough and then they begin to pick, prick each other and they got to move back apart. Um, well, it wasn't even that much different back then. When Jesus picked these guys, he didn't go through uh, a corporate um, headhunting firm or whatever to figure out who would be best. Uh, he sovereignly picked these 12 apostles. And yes, even Judas... The one who betrayed him, he picked him, as we're going to find out either today or next week. Um, but we've realized as we looked at these different guys that it doesn't, it doesn't take um, someone who is in, in this saintly category to be an apostle. It just takes somebody who has a willing heart to follow the Lord. Now, these were obviously very uh, interesting guys, and, and they were kind of a motley crew that he put together at best as we looked at some of them and uh, they were kind of the bottom of society, all right? And we're reminded of the verses where Jesus says, you know, I haven't chosen the wise, I've chosen the foolish, to confound the wise. And so, uh, you know, a lot of us aren't the brightest bulb on the block, but that's what God has given to us, and we try to do everything we can with what he's gifted us with. But uh, our main desire is to serve him with our whole heart. And so these men were left with the task of starting the church, of continuing on Jesus' work. And under the energy of the Holy Spirit, as we've looked at these uh, 11 guys, 12 guys, uh, we're going to find out that they actually did it. They were successful. That's why we're here today. If these guys would not have succeeded, we wouldn't be here. Do you understand that? The church would be non-existent. Because he saw, Jesus, when he left, he basically handed the reins over to them. And they they really, they they laid down the foundation as the key for the rest of history, you might say. Now, in in verse 3 there, at the end there, we see a a guy by the name of Labius whose surname was Thaddeus. All right? And if you look at Luke uh, chapter 6 and over in Acts 1 there, you don't have to look it up. You can find it another time. But uh, there's also a third name of this guy. His name is Judas, the son of James. So this guy... His name as well was Judas, Labius, Thaddeus, Judas. Uh, one place calls him Judas, not Iscariot, because he did not want to get confused with the other guy, all right? which is pr- pretty good. I wouldn't want to be confused with him either. Um, but Judas was a very common name. It means Jehovah leads. Pretty good name. However, you don't find many people today naming their children Judas because of what we're going to find out. Uh, he probably rena- re- received the names Thaddeus and Labius, as people add names. You know, we all have nicknames. We all have other names that people call us. Thaddeus—that word Thaddeus—actually means breastchild. It refers to the fact that Thaddeus was probably the baby of the family. Anybody hear the baby of their family? I come from a big family—nine brothers and sisters—and you know, I'm the baby. And they never stop, and I don't mind it, you know, but it's just kind of weird when you think about it. Here I am, I'm almost 50 years old, and we're, you know, back at my brother's funeral, and my my other brother's introducing me to somebody, and he says, Yeah, here's Stevie, he's the baby of the family. (laughs) You know, I just kind of go, Okay. You know, what am I supposed to do with that? It's just, you know, and you see that happen all the time. You know, you you have some lady introduce their six foot ten, you know, giant. Oh, this is my baby. You know, it's like whoa. Well, it means the youngest of a family, okay. And those of us who are the babies, we know what 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 happens to the youngest of a family. Some good, some bad. But that was kind of a nickname for him. So he was he was probably the youngest one in his family. But his real name Judas means God leads or Jehovah leads, and he was probably as the. The term suggests breast, uh, breast child, kind of a maybe a mommy's boy. All right, he was probably very very close to his mom, and that's not a bad thing, by the way. But that's just a fact. And so, it comes from that 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 word. Uh, Thaddeus comes from the idea that he was close to his his mother's breast. Labius comes from uh, another word that means close to the heart. Very, very close. It it could have maybe been a nickname which meant something to deal with his courage. Maybe this guy had a lot of courage to speak out. We don't know a lot about these remaining guys other than Judas Iscariot. The Bible just doesn't tell us that much about him. But he's kind of wrapped in obscurity here. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on uh, Judas, the son of James, or Labius, or Thaddeus, or Judas, not Iscariot, whatever you want to call him. Okay? But I do want you to turn over to John chapter 14 and we just want to look at at a brief kind of encounter that this apostle has with Christ. And it kind of gives us a little indication, a little background into his maybe personality and his character, things like that. John chapter 14, and remember Jesus is speaking here on the night before his trial and he says there in verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, we could spend the rest of the sermon on that statement, okay, on that verse, but we're not going to do that because that's not the purpose in which we're here for this morning. Um, But he says, "You, you who keep these commandments, you show me that you love me. Um, If you obey me, you love me. Basic principle here. You claim to love God. You claim to love Christ. If you don't obey what he says in his word, then what's your claim? Your claim's a lie. Your claim's a fraud. And that's why he's pointing out, he that keeps my commandments is the one that loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. God can only be manifest to a heart that loves him. Do you realize that? See, that's the reason the people of the world, the people who, who, who don't know him, that's the reason they don't know him. They don't love him. So God's not going to manifest himself to them. That's the reason they can't perceive God's truth. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and and they just kind of look at you with a blank stare and say, well, that's good for you, but I'm moving on. (laughs) And you're going, man, this is just incredible. I can't believe, you know, why don't you want to talk about this? You know, your eternal state hangs in the balance and and they're just not there. They don't have any love toward God nor a willingness to obey God. And God... Doesn't manifest himself to that kind of a heart. God is only manifest to a loving heart. Only those who love him will see the manifestation of God in their lives. Now, when he used that word, that triggered something in Judas' mind here Thaddeus, Labius. In verse 22, here's how he responds. Judas, there it is, not Iscariot, don't get him mixed up, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? If you stop and think about it, that's a pretty good question. You're saying that only those who love you are going to see you and know you, and you're only going to manifest yourself to those who love you. How can you manifest yourself to us and not unto the world? What does he mean by that? He's thinking of this manifestation clearly as something on the outwards, not in the heart, but outside himself. You know, the apostles, just like everybody else during their time, was thinking that the Messiah would come, set up a kingdom on earth, overthrow the Roman government, and he would set up his kingdom here, and they would rule and reign with him physically here right now. That's what they all thought. That's not what Christ was going to do. They didn't know that. And so he's saying to Christ, how could you possibly fulfill what the Messiah is going to do and set up your kingdom here and rule and reign on the earth as we know it and not manifest yourself to everybody. How's that going to happen, Jesus? How could you possibly reign on the throne of David? How could you possibly demonstrate who you are and the world wouldn't see it? That doesn't make any sense. How can it be done in such a way that they're not going to see it? One commentator also says, he also may be saying, why would you think of manifesting yourself only to us and not to the world? Who are we? He may have been thinking that. He's just blown away by the fact that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to manifest myself to you, but I'm not going to manifest myself to the whole world. He's probably thinking, we're a bunch of nobodies. I mean, some of us are criminals. I mean, you're the Messiah. And we want the world to know that. Why won't everybody see you? See, there's kind of some urgency there. You can kind of pick it up. What, what do you mean? You're going to manifest yourself to us and, and, and only to those who love you, not to the, the world necessarily. Daddy is here saying, hey, you know what? If, it, if, it, if it's time for the kingdom to be established on earth, let's do it. Let's get going. How's this going to work if if this isn't, you know, you're not going to manifest yourself to others? And maybe that's where he gets this idea of courage. He didn't care what people thought. He was just like, hey, this is what we've got to do. Let's go. The whole world needs to know that you're the Messiah. But he didn't understand. And so the Lord says to him again, In verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. He repeats the same principle. The only person who's going to perceive who Christ is are those that love him. And in verse 24, basically, he's saying, the one who doesn't love me doesn't know what I'm talking about and doesn't know that it came from God. See, manifestation of the Lord is, in a way, it's limited to reception. It's limited to who's receiving it. It's kind of like a, a, um, a radio transmitter and a receiver. If you're on the wrong frequency, people may be talking, but you know what? You're not going to hear it. Yesterday, I went down to the helicopter show down at the Hiller Museum, and I was too cheap to go pay and go in, so I sat in my car. It was cold anyway, but I had my scanner. For probably a half hour, I'm trying to figure out what frequency the Airbus is on. Okay, There's like usually a general frequency they use. And for some reason, I wasn't picking it up, and I didn't know it at that time. The tower was in control, the Airbus wasn't. So, I mean, we were like just two ships passing in the night. It was getting very frustrating. I'd go to the tower, nobody'd be talking. And I'd go to the other frequency, nobody'd be talking. I think somebody's got to be talking. There's airplanes flying around. You know, somebody's got to be in control of these things. Well, I was on the wrong frequency. I was trying to listen to something, but I was on the, and they were talking. They were saying things. So once I dialed in the right frequency, then it was like, oh, okay, now I can hear what you're saying. And it's the same way with God. Robert Stevenson quoted Thoreau as saying this one time, it takes two people to speak the truth, the one who says it and the one who hears it. See, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came unto his own, but his own what? Received him not. They weren't tuned in. They didn't receive what he had to say. It says that he was in the world. The world was made by him, but the world knew him not. The Bible also says the God of this world has blinded their minds. See, light has come into the world, but men love what? Darkness. They love darkness you don't believe that, talk to any law enforcement agency. Ask them when their busiest time is. Sun goes down, look out. The darkness comes out. But see, the receivers aren't on with some folks. And Jesus is basically saying, I can only manifest myself to people who are going to receive it. I mean, it's kind of an insightful question and I'm glad that Jesus had the opportunity to answer it. But I think he's also asking here, Thaddeus is wondering, why would you tell it to us and not to the whole world? Why would you limit it just to us? And that's kind of his humility in a way. So there's some things here that maybe are admirable about him. We don't know a lot about him. But from what we see, he wasn't prideful. He didn't say, yeah, that's right, only us. Just tell us, Jesus, those other low lowlifes don't need to know. No. He knew from whence he came. And that's a good message for the church, too. Sometimes we've got to remember from where we came. Sometimes we go out and witness, and we think we're self-righteous, and you know that's how we're portrayed to, to the world, and that's how we're portraying Christ to the world, and that's not going to be received too well best way to witness to somebody is tell them what Christ has done for you. Tell them your personal testimony. Because hopefully in your personal testimony, there's a point in time where you were without Christ. And when you were without Christ, you realized how sinful you were. And, and God touched your heart and, and drew you to himself, saved you. You didn't save yourself. It really bugs me when people say, oh, yeah, then I found God. Was God lost? What do you mean you found God? What does that mean? Or I found Jesus or this happened. And they make it all about themselves. It's not about us, beloved. It's a work of God that God does in the heart according to his sovereign plan and will. So you have to receive things from God. You have to be on his frequency if you're going to be blessed by the word and, and uh, salvation. Only those whose heart are, have been purified by Christ, who love and walk in obedience to Him, will know the manifestation of God in His life. That's why sometimes, even as believers, when you get in a certain rut and you're doing some, maybe doing some things that you shouldn't be doing, and you just say, ah, I just don't feel good. I just don't feel like a Christian. I just don't feel like, well, yeah, you're not going to. Because you're not being obedient to what God has revealed to you. We've all heard stories of people who, you know, God puts it in their heart to go do something, go do a certain ministry or go move to a certain city and reach the lost or do whatever. And they just fight it. No, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. Some missionaries have been called overseas and they won't go. And they just live life in a miserable state until finally God breaks it down to the point where they're obedient to the call of God. And then they find fulfillment like nothing. It's just incredible the blessing that's outpoured in their life. But Thaddeus was, even though he was obscure, the early church tradition tells us basically that he was a tremendously gifted man of God. He had a tremendous anointing of God upon him to heal the sick. This is all... Tradition, church father's stuff and everything, it's not really in the Bible. That's all we have about him in the Bible. But tradition says a certain king in Syria by the name of Abgar heard about Thaddeus's miraculous works. And he was ill and he called for Thaddeus to come and to heal him. And on the way he healed multiple hundreds of people throughout Syria. And when he finally reached the king, he healed the king and he presented the gospel to this king of Syria. Syria. And the king became a Christian. And that just kind of threw the whole country in disarray because that wasn't to be in that country. And they had an apostate nephew of the king who seized Thaddeus because everything was in chaos. He made him a prisoner and he actually martyred him and he was killed in Syria. History says that. If you ever pick up a, a, a book, an older history book of the saints, you notice that by Thaddeus' name there's a big club that just indicates probably how he died he was probably beat to death but he was faithful to our Lord till the end that's all we know next guy on the list Simon the Zealot now uh, your Bible may read the Canaanite back to Matthew 10 it may read Simon the Canaanite but that's really a poor translation of that word Um, in Luke he's called Simon the Zealot Um, And it's it's kind of another word meaning the, the same thing. Simon was full of zeal, Simon the Zealot. Some people believe that maybe he was defined by his affiliation with a certain organization within Judaism known as the Zealots. And when he became a disciple, they didn't change his name. Because he probably still continued to manifest that fiery, zealous nature, passionate zeal that he was that he had when he was a, a zealot. So you have to understand in Judaism there's basically four dominant groups in their religious organization there's the Pharisees, we always hear about them. they were the, the, the kind of the, the, the righteous people, the fundamentalists, the legalists. You had the Sadducees, they were the liberals. remember in Bible college. They always said this, you've probably heard this, but there was a difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were see. Okay, so that's how I always remember, because they were just liberal. They didn't believe God could raise anybody from the dead. Then you had the Essenes, who were the mystics and the, the kind of the, the, the monastics out in the caves. And then you had this group called the Zealots. And they were a political organized group. And basically they were a terrorist group. That's what they were. There were guerrillas, and they hated Rome with a passion. There was even a group of the Zealots called the uh, Sakari, and they were assassins. And they would go out and they would just kill people. They would murder people, all thinking they were doing it in the name of Judaism. And there was a time in history when they were just uh, just incredibly powerful. I mean, they just overran A lot of things that got in their way. And it didn't matter if you were, you know, a Roman or even if you were a Jewish person and you were affiliated with the Romans in some way. They would kill you. Because they thought, you know what, we've got to purify this. These Romans, they're tired of Rome's rule and reign over them. They'd murder here, they'd murder there, they'd go out in these little bands and just kill people, start fires, all sorts of things. They had a leader by the name of Judas, not either one of these guys, but just another guy. It's a very popular name, by the way. But his name was Judas, too. And he would just organize all these little terrorist kind of movements. And the the Romans got so sick of it, they killed him. But the zealots just kept on going. They were so passionate about their political cause. And basically, that led to what we know as the, the holy wars. Josephus, believe that he calls it the Holy Wars and you can read about that in the the book of Maccabees and other places in the Apocrypha where it tells some of these things that went on back then it's very possible that Simon was a member of the Zealots he maybe even was a, a terrorist engaged in this guerrilla warfare finally in 70 AD the Romans had it with these zealots and they thought the only way that they could deal with them is to just wipe everybody out and that's when they went in and they destroyed uh, Jerusalem and wiped it all out basically they still continued in operation this little band of terrorists have you ever watched the uh, have you ever seen pictures of the Masada got to visit that place well, the people that were holed up up there, some historians believe that they were zealots. That's where they went. That's kind of like there, there was a terrorist base camp. I mean, the movie makes it sound like, oh, yeah, these were just normal Jewish guys, and you know. Um, but they were very politically organized. And you know how it all ended up there. I mean, you can go walk up there and you see this, this huge, I mean, this place is just on top of this mountain. I mean, there's just no way to get there. So the Romans had to build this huge ramp and it's, it's, it's all there. I mean, you can see it with your own eyes. It's amazing. And when the Romans were finally successful in, in breaching the wall and everything, the zealots had a plan. You know what? They're not going to be taken alive by someone of Rome. Definitely not. They were so politically uh, crazy. They just said there's no way this is going to happen. And so they had a meeting and they basically decided, you know what? We're going to... Basically, go back to our houses, we're going to kill our wives and children, and then we'll kill ourselves because we're not going to be taken captive by the Romans. And it was inevitable that they would come over the wall and, and, and uh, attack them. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, it was, it, it was crazy. I think 960 people perished up there. Only two women and five children escaped because they were hiding in a cave somewhere. And they did it to themselves. So when the Romans got up there, everybody was dead. I mean, that's the kind of mentality, the kind of zeal that Simon probably had. Now, it's interesting that he's named in the list in Matthew right next to Judas Iscariot. And it's probably his buddy that, you know, they kind of broke up in twos, Judas Iscariot was probably his partner. They probably identify with each other. I mean, you know, they were probably kind of way over the edge kind of thing, you know, just um, wanting Christ to take this thing physical on the earth and just everything. And they probably identify with each other. And it's also interesting that here's this Simon the Zealot and he's in a group of guys with who? Matthew the collector. I mean, this is a guy that would just, you know, cut that guy's throat, just soon look at him. But here, Christ calls these people from different backgrounds, and he changes their heart. He transforms their heart to where, you know what, the cause that once drove Simon is is no longer the cause. So, to run into somebody like Matthew, who was one of his own people, but used to betray his own people to the government of, of Rome through taxation, he was the bottom of the barrel. I mean... You know, I wonder sometimes if around the table when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, if Simon didn't look at Matthew, I know it's you. I mean, just because that's they didn't, didn't have any respect at all. But Christ had changed their heart and they transformed these guys, which is just just incredible. We don't know anything much more about Simon at all. But let's look at the last guy on the we'll start this today, the last guy on the list, Judas Iscariot. He's the one that stands out from all the others, basically. He's isolated, he's lonely, he's alone. His name's Judas Iscariot. He's basically the vilest, wickedest man the Bible knows anything about. Um, He's always listed last in every every list. And he's always listed with a with a comment about his betrayal. Even there, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Kind of a dark story here amongst these 12 guys. Um, his name, like today, I said earlier, you wouldn't name your son Judas. You just wouldn't do it. Most people don't. They know what the name means biblically. It's just kind of a, There's 40 verses in the New Testament which deal with the reference of the betrayal of Judas uh, to Christ. But you know what? After the mention of his death in the first chapter of Acts, he totally disappears from Scripture. There's no more mention of him at all. First of all, his name. His common name, as we already said. Labius Thaddeus, is, is, he had the same name. He was also called Judas um, it's basically a, a form of Judah, the land of God's people, if it means God's lead, whatever whatever it means. If there's anything positive in it, um, it's, it's a clear uh, kind of contradiction to who this guy was. I mean, because he obviously wasn't led by Jehovah. The Bible says that he was led by Satan himself. Um, If it means worthy of praise, there's never somebody more unworthy of praise than Judas Iscariot. Iscariot basically is just the location of where he lived. Kerioth, it's a town down south. He's the only non-Galilean of the group, which is kind of interesting. At the very beginning, he was almost an outsider. All the other guys grew up in the same almost neighborhood, fishing and and knowing each other. Not, Not Judas Iscariot. We don't know anything about his call the other guys you know Matthew was sitting at the tax doesn't say anything the call of Judas is not recorded in the Bible we meet him the first time right here in this list and we don't know how he got in the group I mean we do know that the Lord called him because the Bible says that but we don't know any of those circumstances We do know that he wanted to be involved, but we don't know how it was he attached himself to Christ. We don't know what attracted him to Christ. He obviously followed him. He stayed with him. He stayed with him actually longer than a lot of the other false disciples. Remember, disciple just means learner. It just means someone who's willing to learn. That's all it means. And so Jesus had probably thousands of disciples, people who at one point were following him. And then maybe he would say something harsh, you know, unless you deny yourself and your mother and your father and take up the cross and follow me. Well, then, you know, the the people who weren't really learners, who didn't really want to follow, they were just there for whatever reason, they would fall away. Well, Judas apparently stuck with it. He continued when other false disciples wouldn't. In John 6, when he said, hey, this is a a major commitment that you have to make. It says, after that, many of his disciples walked no more with him. I mean, even Jesus all, his called out commitment to these guys. He says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. At one point, Judas stuck it out. He stayed there. So there was something that attracted him to Christ. I don't think it was something spiritual just because of the way things turned out. I think he was attracted to Christ for a selfish reason. You know, there's people today that are attracted to Christ for selfish reasons, beloved. Purely selfish. They're not interested in spiritual things. They can care less about spiritual things. I talked to a guy one time. He told me he went to church. I said, oh, really? I said, what kind of church? He told me the church, and and uh, um, he goes, you know, there is a lot of good contacts in churches. I go, what do you mean? He goes, why well, go for the contacts? You know, he goes, I have a business, and you know, I just, boy, I just it's good. It's kind of like a, you know, one of those those meetings at the, with the city. You know, you get in there and you you, you make all your, your business contacts. He goes, man, the churches are just wide open for stuff like that. If you can get a church directory, oh man. I'm thinking, whoa, okay. So that's why you go to church. Well, yeah, yeah, my wife likes to go, you know. but that's my main reason to go. I thought, boy, how sad is that? Going for purely selfish reasons. He's not tuned into Christ. He's not receiving anything. He's just kind of filling a spot. But he, But they're there. Same with Judas. He followed in a half-hearted way maybe, but he followed. And in one sense, from his side... And this gets interesting. He chose to follow Christ. Christ didn't drag him. He chose to follow Christ. But on the other side, from Christ's perspective, he was chosen to follow. So you have a paradox there. You have the paradox of human choice, and you have the paradox of divine sovereignty. How does that pan out? I don't know. I know when I came to Christ, it's because I wanted to come to Christ. You know, I didn't have a pastor sitting there with me. Pray this prayer. I don't want to pray. Pray it. I said pray it. Okay. I'll pray it. I'll pray it. That didn't happen that way. I can't imagine someone coming to Christ that way. You came to Christ because you you realized that you were in need of forgiveness because of the darkness of the sin in your heart. And so when you came to Christ, it, it, it was out of a need, but it was because he was drawing you, but it was also because you wanted to. Nobody's going to go to heaven kicking and screaming, I want to go to hell and party with my friends. It's not going to happen that way. So remember, there'll be no partying in hell, beloved. The Bible describes that very clearly as a place of utter darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth. The worst place that you can think of times a million. That's hell. Total absence of God. Well, he chose Christ. Christ chose him. I don't think it was really Jesus alone that drew him. I think that it, Jesus, you know, I mean, obviously chose him there. He saw the power of Christ. He saw what was available in that group. He was probably disheartened with where he was. And this is all conjecture, by the way. But he was chosen to follow. And only God, in the mind of God, can that be solved, that paradox there. But the one thing we know for sure is that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Stop and think about it. You're starting a new company. You're putting together a team of 12 guys that are, the, you know, in your mind, going to carry on the legacy of your company. And you know beforehand one of them is going to cheat you. They're going to rip off your company, take everything you have. Are you going to pick that person? I don't think so. You'd have to be an idiot to pick somebody like that. But see, within the divine foreknowledge of God and the divine plan of God, Judas was needed as part of the 12 in a weird way. Because he knew it was going to happen. He knows everything. Even back in John chapter 6, verse 70, it says, Many went away, and the 12 remained. And then Jesus, at at that early time, said, and one of you is what? The devil. So from the very beginning, he knew what was going to happen. Christ wasn't surprised by Judas' betrayal. And he knew also because of what the Old Testament said. I mean, there's a lot of places in the Psalms, but Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 says, And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a lordly price that was prized at them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Someone is sold for thirty pieces of silver. Gee, I wonder what happens in the New Testament and you don't think the Bible's a supernatural book I mean it's strange because what's the potter doing in the house of the Lord anyway I mean that's, that's kind of odd. but he was betrayed by his own familiar friend for thirty pieces of silver and the New Testament basically records what the Old Testament would, said would happen. So when Jesus chose Judas, he knew that he was a betrayer. He knew the prophecies about him would come true. And he cho- chose him because that's part of the plan, it's part of the divine plan of God. Now look over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's praying about his disciples. He's praying about the 12. And he says in in verse 12 of John 17, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, except who? Son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's a child of lostness. Luther translates that the lost child, the one whose nature is to be lost. See, it isn't the one who loses his salvation because you can't lose your salvation once you have it. The Bible is very clear on that one. But the one whose nature was lost. He was he lost none of them but the lost one. It's really what that text is saying, in order that Scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus says to the Father, Judas is lost, because it is the fulfilling of Scripture. Jesus therefore chose him because he knew the Scripture. He chose him to be the fulfilment of the Scripture. That was the plan. the very beginning, he says, one of you is the devil. He didn't pick which one, but he knew the plan. Now, here's this paradox once again. You might ask me the question, if it's in the plan, then are you going to hold Judas responsible? Does Judas bear any responsibility to his betray, betrayal of Christ? If Hey, if God planned this all out, how can you say that you're going to hold Judas responsible. How can God predetermine this? How can God set up such a plan, make all these prophecies, pull it off, fit Judas in, and then hold Judas responsible? That, that doesn't sound right. Does it? doesn't sound right to me. That's exactly what God does. How he can do it, I, I don't know. How he does it, I don't know. Because the infinite mind of God is obviously far beyond any of ours. But I do understand very clearly what the Bible says. It says in Luke 22, Luke 22 verse 21 and 21 and 22 He's speaking here at the last supper And he says but behold the hand of my betrayer verse 21 is with me on the table verse 22 and truly the son of man goes what as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed See, on the one hand, it's determined. But on the other hand, Judas is responsible. I don't know how you put those two together. That's for God to figure out. Same way it is in salvation. If you're saved, it's because it was determined before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. That's what the Bible says, Ephesians. Read the first chapter of Ephesians. But you know what? If you're lost, that's your responsibility. You figure that one out, call me. I'd love to to talk to you. See, you can't resolve those two things. You just can't. And when we try to resolve it, what do we do? Something breaks down. Look at Acts chapter 2. You Acts. okay? Acts chapter (laughs) 2. Kind of quiet in here. Acts chapter 2. Verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God do God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, verse 23, him being what? Delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's God's plan. That's God's divine sovereignty. And yet the very next sentence, what does it say? You have taken. By lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Two truths, one verse. <laughs> it seems like we can't put those two together. On the one hand, Peter says, Hey, this was God's plan. On the other hand, he's saying you guys are responsible for the death of Christ. He says God delivered them him over. God determined this beforehand. But you know what? You have taken him, and you're responsible for his death. You see, the overruling power, the overruling providence of God can allow such a man as Judas to wish to follow Christ, to choose to follow Christ, and yet be in utter fulfillment of the divine plan and still have his own choice. That's the power of God. That's how it works. Now, outwardly, Judas didn't appear to have a defective character. We know that because he was among the 12, and none of them suspected him of anything. and pro- he probably had qualities and capacities which we don't even know. I don't think he just showed up with the other 11 and saying, "Hey, can I be part of your group? I'm a criminal thief, and I'm going to rip off Jesus and you know betray him." and you know no it didn't happen that way. Three years he was with the disciples and Jesus said in the upper room in John 13, one of you will betray me. And all the apostles looked around. Oh, who is it, I? Remember? They didn't point to Judas and say, there he is, get him. They, no, they, they didn't have a clue who it was. Everyone said, is it I? See, they had more reason to sus- no more reason to suspect Judas than they had reason to suspect themselves because they were just a motley crew of people. They knew better about themselves, and they assumed better about Judas. He was a great hypocrite. He lived a life that just fooled everybody. I mean, he was so good that amongst those 12 people, when it came time to figure out who was going to handle all the money, guess who they put in charge? Judas. Not something you would do with a traitor. They had no idea. They trusted him. They no doubt loved him. I mean, it's hard to be much worse than Matthew on the scale of of being somebody in society. He was just at the bottom. Simon the Zealot may have been an assassin for all we know. I mean, you know, this this crummy bunch of guys that got together, you know, they probably didn't look at Judas and say, oh, he's bad too. He probably had some qualities about himself that kind of enamored himself to these guys. It's interesting that he never says a word. Judas never says a word until he complains about the waste of money in Bethany. The whole biblical record, the whole three years he never opens his mouth. I'm sure that was by his own design because he was living a lie. He had to live a guarded life because he was living a lie. He didn't want to say too much because he might let the cat out of the bag. So he's probably back in the shadows most of the time. Just watching and, and, and waiting for his time to come. I mean, he could have been a John or a Peter. He had as much potential as anybody else. I mean, I think all these guys had the raw material to be an incredible disciple and apostle. I don't think he was any more unqualified than any of the other guys. He's probably young, a devout Jew, somewhat patriotic Jew, just by his actions. He didn't want Romans, the Romans to rule over his people. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would come and he would set up a kingdom physically here on earth, and that he'd get rid of this, this Roman rule and overthrow them. And eventually the days of prosperity and glory would come again. And for him it was all earthly. See, sometimes when you when you share the Lord with people, all they're thinking about is earthly things. You talk to someone about Christ, and immediately it's, "Well, oh, you know, if I if I make this commitment thing you're talking about, um, what do I have to give up?" It's all earthly stuff. Does that mean I got to come church every day? Does that mean I got to stop smoking? I got to stop drinking? I got to what, what do I got to give up? What do I got to change? What are, you know? How's it going to affect me personally? It's all materialistic nonsense. We, we have, a, we have a, a problem seeing into eternity today. Everything is here and now with us. Sometimes I wonder when we're walking around out there in society if we could when we looked in people's faces if we could see a little video screen of that person burning in hell one day if maybe maybe that would motivate us just a little bit more to share Christ with them <laughs> but we don't go there you know, it's too embarrassing to share our faith we don't want to be over the top we don't want to be rude we don't want to be, you know we make up all these excuses you just fit right into this group Probably looked at it as, hey, you know what? One day this group's going to, I mean, they're going to hit it. They're going to hit pay dirt because he's doing all these miracles. I can just see this thing happening big time and there's going to be money. Guess who's the treasurer? It's me. He was already stealing from the treasury, the Bible says. He was never really drawn to the person of Jesus to believe and to love Jesus. That was his problem. He only saw Jesus as a means to an end, a gain for himself. And you know what? Unfortunately, today, that's what we've done with the gospel. We've taken the gospel of Christ that says, biblically, it says, you know what? There's nowhere else to go, folks. You're lost in your sin. Everyone is sin. There's not, not one that is, that is uh, uh, righteous. The Bible says, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a result of that, we all deserve hell, We're all on our way to hell. God in His sovereign love and choice reaches down and gives us the opportunity to believe in Him. And we want to know, well, is this going to fix my marriage, this Jesus thing? Is this going to help my finances, this Jesus thing? What's it going to do for me in the end? Well, if it doesn't do anything else for you, your entire life. Say you come to Christ and you live in utter squalor the rest of your life. All your family passes away and you're left on a, a, a ash heap scraping sores by yourself, totally depressed. If you have Christ, at least in the end, you'll be in heaven. And that's what's going to count then. You're not going to be in heaven going, gee, I wish I would have had that other opportunity. No. Nothing's going to matter. Same lesson for, I mean, as we look at Father's Day, and we look at our kids and how we can pour our lives into our children, how important that is. And yet the world just almost forces us to go the opposite direction. Because, you know, we've got to get ready for retirement, we've got to do all this stuff, and we've got to plan all this stuff. I mean, that's great. If retirement works, that's great. But you know what? Show me in the Bible where you see this not there should we plan should we care so that after our demise hopefully our our kids have something yes but this whole idea of, of living a life till the age of 65 and then you just you know I mean they toil all their lives and then at 66 they're dead and their families wasted because all they did is they sold out their soul to their job just to, so that one day they could retire and get the boat and go to the lake and do all. And they're dead by the time they're 66. Sad, but true. Judas was just that mindset. He was just the here and now. That's all he cared about. Jesus chose Judas because of the plan, yet offered Judas every opportunity not to fulfill it. It's interesting. He chose Judas. Because of the plan. And yet at every point in time, he was constantly, constantly reaching out to Judas. He gave Judas the lesson of the unjust steward. He gave him the lesson of the wedding garment. He gave him the lesson of money and greed. He gave Judas the lessons of pride. He said a lot of things. He said, one of you is the devil. I think in his heart, Jesus was warning Judas... But Judas never listened. He never applied anything. He just kept up all his deceit. I mean, the disciples' relationship to him was kind of interesting. He was in a group of four. He's in the last group, which, as we know, indicates that he was the least kind of personal with Jesus. Their intimacy was very far and few between. He didn't fit into that group really at all because he was a non-Galilean. And the people down south thought themselves really as better than anybody else. So, I mean, it was just a bad mix from the beginning. They must have loved him. They must have trusted him because they gave him the job of carrying all the money. But you know what? You really don't have to be spiritual to do that kind of stuff. That's kind of like, you know, 2 plus 2 is 4. I mean, you don't have to pray before you add 2 plus 2, right? You don't pray about it. It's It's there. So it wasn't one of the most spiritual things that Judas could have done, but they obviously trusted him. In John 13, the last supper, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they didn't have a clue who it would be. And he says, it's the one whom I give the sup, and he's the one who's going to betray me. Sup's kind of a piece of bread, and kind of like sometimes you go to an Italian restaurant, getting me hungry, talking about this, but you go to an Italian restaurant and, you, you know, they give you the, the bread and they bring out the uh, olive oil and the, the, the whatever stuff. And you dip this bread in there and you eat it. It's kind of like that. That's kind of what they used to do. It's usually a jam made of nuts and fruits and stuff. And it was a, a way to honor your guest. You would give them the first portion of this. And he said to the one to whom I give the sup, how are we going to know? Who the, well, it's the one I give the sup to it is that betrays me and he dipped this up and he gave it right to Judas see we don't understand that at that time he was honoring Judas Christ was honoring Judas he was reaching out to him once again saying you don't have to do this I love you too much he was respecting him he was showing love to him he was lifting him up even among the the, the crowd there the twelve guys An act of love and an act of affection. Besides teaching him, warning him, he actually honored the man. Hard to believe. He was always reaching out to him. But you see, this progression was unstoppable. It just kept on going downhill. Judas keeps hoping amongst these three years. Any minute, Jesus is going to grab the kingdom and then we're going to overthrow. He's holding out hope. They all believe that. The Lord began to tell them, though, before he was going to become the lion of the tribe of Judah, he had to be the lamb that had to be slain. They didn't understand that at all. They thought, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to be slain? What do you mean you're going to give up your life? And I think it was finally on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into the city and everybody's shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. All these palm branches are going all over the place. Judas is in the back kind of going, this is it. This is when he steps to the plate and he overthrows Rome and all these people just, you know, cheer him on and we take over. Final straw for Judas. Jesus gets off the donkey and he gives a speech. Here's what he says. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. What's he saying? I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to die. And Judas is probably thinking, Whoa, all these people, we got all these people on our side. What are you talking about? Judas wasn't on the spiritual plane. He was purely on the physical plane. Greed, selfishness, all that stuff. In John chapter 12, we see where Jesus is being anointed by Mary, verse 3. She's pouring out this love and pouring out this affection to the Lord. Very costly perfume, by the way. Finally, Judas speaks up. Then said one of his disciples, says, and this is the first time he ever opens his mouth. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. We don't know who Simon is. I feel sorry for the guy, don't you? I mean, Which should betray him? He asks this question, why was not this ornament sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He hated Jesus so deeply, by this point, he couldn't stand anybody paying any homage to him or any worship to him at all. The hate in his heart had taken over. You know, that's what happens to people when they're given the gospel, and and over time, it's rejected, time and time and time again. Their their heart doesn't grow more open to it. it. It grows more cold. It grows more closed off. And resentment starts to build. That's what happened to Judas. Jesus didn't do what he expected. He was very, very angry at this. This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. <laughs> he was stealing from them the whole time. I mean, can you imagine this kind of guy? He's, he's just in the crowd. just Nobody just does anything. He's ripping them off. I mean, some people look at Jesus and say, well, you know, there's probably some motives. No, this guy was bad to the bone, as they say. I mean, when Jesus points to a group of guys and says, one of you is the devil, and he has Judas in mind here, okay, that, that's not, uh, you know, saying anything positive. And before he betrayed him, Jesus said, and Satan entered into him. I mean, when Satan himself enters into a person, I mean, it's one thing to be demon-possessed, okay? That's, that's, that's serious business. But when Satan himself enters into someone, I don't think anything good is going to come out of that, beloved. And that incident occurred immediately. That night, Judas left Bethany, and he brought about the first fatal interview with the, the chief priest's began to negotiate with them just as Zachariah said. He got his 30 pieces of silver. See, the Lord was anointed out of love, but he was betrayed out of hate. That same night. See, and that's the way it is with everybody. Either you take Jesus Christ and you enthrone him in your life, or you betray him. There's no middle ground. You can't have one foot in, one foot out, you know, do the hokey pokey turn it all about, whatever the song is. You know, it doesn't work that way. Either you're you're enthroning Christ in your life, you're coming to him as a broken person saying, God, I need forgiveness. Or you're betraying him. There's no middle ground. Either you're Mary or you're Judas. John 13, you're back in the room in verse 10. He says, "Are you, you're all clean, but not all of you. And he began to point out Judas, not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Verse 18, I speak not of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. I know the 11 who are saved is what he's saying, but that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And they didn't know who it was. And that's when they went around and said, Is it I? Is it I? He fit right in so nicely. And yet, in verse 21 there, when Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit. I mean, here's a guy that's going to give his life in a cruel death the next day, and he's got to put up with this stuff? I mean, it's amazing to me. And he continues to reach out to Judas. Judas. He went through with his betrayal 30 pieces of silver and it ended the way the Bible basically predicted Judas betrayed Christ Christ died Judas even realized what he had done I mean this is a guy that, that went to the garden led the guards to the garden and it says that you know he kissed Jesus that's what we read in the original language it says he kisses him over and over and over like over the top affection and that's why Jesus says hey you betray a friend with a kiss for a couple bucks When you ask, is is the act of Judas unique? I don't think so. I think we betray Christ often in our own lives. We need to go back to him and we need to ask him for forgiveness. Someone wrote this. It may not be for silver. It may not be for gold. But yet by tens of thousands, the prince of life is sold. Sold for a godless friendship. Sold for a selfish aim. Sold for a fleeting trifle. Sold for an empty name. Sold in the name of science. Sold in the seat of power. Sold at the shrine of fortunes. Sold in pleasure's hour. Sold for your awful bargain. None but God's eye can see. Ponder my soul the question. How shall he be sold by thee? Sold, O God. What a moment stilled his conscious voice, sold unto weeping angel, re, re, angel records the fatal choice, sold, but the prince accepted to a living coal shall turn with the pains of a late repentance, deep in a soul to burn. See, Jesus sold Je- or Judas sold Jesus for greed and people are doing that all the time. People do that all the time. In Acts chapter 1, it says that he was so distraught It says that he repented, but that word repentance doesn't mean repentance the way we understand repentance. It basically means he was sorry. He was sorry about what he did. That's not what repentance means, by the way. The word used there, it means wanting to change your feelings. In other words, he felt bad. He regretted it. See, that doesn't cut it with God. Because when do you usually feel bad? When you get caught, right? That's the only reason you feel bad. See, a spiritually minded man deals with his conscience in a spiritual way. He goes to God for forgiveness. But a materialist, someone who's earthly minded, deals with his problems on an earthly basis. Just take this pain away. Just help me feel better. And the Bible says that he went out basically he tried to give the money back they wouldn't take it and kind of lost his mind he went out and hung himself having thrown the money on the temple floor Acts chapter 1 says that he died having his bowels burst asunder he couldn't even hang himself right I don't know if the rope was too long or what happened but he ended up falling on the rocks beneath and just basically bursting open I mean what what a waste of a life you know as you look at these these disciples, as you look at these apostles, there's a couple things that, you know, I mean, we need to understand that these were not super saints. These were, these were people just like you and I, probably worse than you and I. And God took them and he did an incredible thing because they were obedient to him. At least 11 were. I mean, the Lord uses unqualified people. We've been asking the question, what kind of people does God use? He uses unqualified people. He uses people like you and I. I pray that you'd give him your heart, your life. And say, God, I don't know how you're going to use me, but use me. Just use me. Use my gifts. Use my personality. Use my talents. Use me. I want to be used by you. doesn't matter what age you are. God will use you. He can use these guys. He can use us. There was a concert violinist who wanted to make a demonstration and very well-known guy and he went to this big hall and said, he, announcer came out and said he's going to come out and play a piece of music on a $20,000 violin. Everybody, wow. So he came out and played his piece of music. Everybody was just so impressed. They were clapping and everything. And he took the violin and threw it down on the ground began to stomp on it and just smashed it. Everybody in the audience is just, whoa, what's this guy doing? $20,000 violin, you're going to be out of your mind. He went backstage. The announcer came out. Relax, relax. He's going to come back out. That was not a $20,000 violin. That was a $20 violin. He'll now come out to play the tune on the $20,000 violin. See, the point of that, that story is what made the difference. The person playing the violin. See, In Christian ministry, it's not about us. I don't think there's many 20,000 violins here in the room, okay? <laughs> they got a couple hundred dollar violins, 50. You know, some of us are down the 5 $10 range. You know, who knows? But that doesn't matter to God. What matters is, are you, are you going to yield your life to him so that he can live his life through you? So that you can become a tune, a, a song to those who are lost and they can see Christ in your life. And he can use you in an incredible way. That's the question. So hopefully when you think of these 12 guys, you think of them in a little different light now. Hopefully you've got to know them a little bit better. And you realize that, you know what, they were just like us. And we can be used like them if we yield our lives to him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would uh, minister um, to our hearts here in this place. Father, we ask that you would... um, as we've gone through these lives of these 12 apostles, Lord, what a hard way to end it in tragedy. I'm looking at the life of Judas. But Lord, I can't help to think that there may even be somebody here in this place this morning who is not far off from where Judas is because he betrayed the Lord. And as I said earlier, either you enthrone the Lord or you betray him. There's no middle ground. Father, I pray that you would open the hearts that maybe have grown cold and hard toward you for whatever reason. They may have good reason. But Lord, when when we look at you and we look at your goodness and we look at your love and we look at your grace and your mercy and how you provide for us and even how you reached out to Judas over and over and over again, Lord, that's a God that we can love. That's a God that we want to save us. And I pray for anybody here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, that they would cry out to you in the quietness of their heart, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me what I need to do to be saved. Help me to cry out to you. Help me to repent of my sin. Turn it over to you. I know your son died for me. He rose on the third day in victory over sin and death. And I don't have to live my life like everybody else in the world. I can live my life according to your word, according to your plan. And so, Father, we just ask that you would do that. Pray that you'd encourage Christians today, too, that we would be the witness that we're called to be in a lost and dying world, that we're seeing many come to Christ. And we pray, Lord, for our fathers today, that they would be honored today, Lord, but more than that, they would honor you. And, Father, that you would just give them a good time with their families. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.